When I was a medical student, I wasn't sure if my faith had a place in the way I would practice medicine. I needed to see this done well, to have it modeled for me in order to overcome my hesitation and fears. Through their example and friendship, the members of the Catholic Medical Association have inspired me and showed me that yes, this can be done. Come and see how Novus Medicus, the young members of the Catholic Medical Association, can provide you with a sense of belonging and challenge you to use your gifts as a faithful Catholic in the medical community. Visit our website, novusmedicus.org, to connect with us today and start your journey to live out your faith to the fullest in the calling of medicine. Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. You can learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. You can live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us today will be Dr. Marguerite Duane. She's a multi-talented family physician who works in the D.C. metro area in a practice that includes doing house calls. She's going to educate us about a growing movement that's called direct primary care. Now, Chris, what makes this topic important? I mean, really, is it is it a thing worth bringing up? Oh, it is. She's going to talk about what some listeners might think of as the medicine of yesteryear, or maybe um, what listeners' grandparents talked about. Um, and that's a good thing. <laughs> but I think what we're seeing, and I think what she'll describe for us, is really a, um, a movement, if you will, among physicians and patients alike that says, I don't like all of the corporate medicine big health systems that employ thousands of physicians that have their own agenda and drive them to do whatever they, the, the agenda of the day says. I want to go back to that relationship um, with my physician that I can call anytime when I have a question um, or a problem. And, and that's the opposite of what you and I are living. You know, you and I, Tom, are independent, private practice physicians, right. but we're the last of a dying breed, aren't we? We don't want to be a dying breed. We want to reverse the trajectory if we can. <laughs> but, you know, depending on, you know, which article you read, I've heard numbers as high as 75% of American physicians now are employed by hospital systems. That's oh. what I meant by corporate medicine. Oh, and, and that represents a tremendous change in the relationship. What's even more complicated when you, when you layer on top of that is there's really a third person in the relationship. There's the patient, there's the physician, and you know who the third person is, the insurance company. Right. And so the physician and the patient are trying to decide what to do, and the insurance company says, but wait a minute, I'm paying the bill, I get a say in what to do, and what I think is best for you may not be what you think is best for you, may not be what your physician thinks is best for you. What a mess. Uh, and we, we've gotten here slowly, but we've gotten here. And I think direct primary care and this idea of we can say enough and we can go back to a much more personalized form of primary care up to and including house calls, which I can't wait to hear her talk about. I think this is one of the antidotes that some doctors have found for burnout because a lot mm. of the reading I've done on burnout is it's something that's often due to a system that imposes certain types of behaviors on the physician. It's not intrinsic in the job itself. And most of us doctors went into it for the intrinsic things, for the relationships with the one-on-one -on -one dealing with the patient and helping them um, as a person, not just as, a, uh, oh, I've got an organ system that's going wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, a lot of physicians and nurses, health, all healthcare providers, when they're talking about burnout, you'll hear them say things like you mentioned, I feel like somebody's doing something to me. I feel like somebody in a, an administrative office is sticking little needles in a doll that looks just <laughs> like me, you know, um, that idea that I, I just want to get away from that. I just want to take care of people that, that want me to take care of them. I, I don't want to be part of a gigantic system. Right. Um, and there are some aspects to what she does that surprise me, but I, I'm not going to steal her thunder. Uh, but there's a number of doctors in the Catholic Medical Association I know, and this is, I think, becoming more common. 
where doctors want more control over their practice for the good of treating their patients the way they think is best. Yes. And at first glance, people think, and I'm sure she'll talk about this, no, that's too expensive. That's only for the ultra rich. But I think we'll learn that's a, that's just not true. Um, because again, with insurance companies and insurance plans, we're paying most of us who have commercial insurance plans a great deal of money out of pocket. And a lot of the direct primary care programs say, look, you could pay that amount or less and have unfettered access to your primary care physician and not need the insurance except for the really big stuff. So I think it'll be interesting to hear what kind of people get interested in this this new idea of direct primary care. You know, this is exactly an idea I read about in a book that Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote over 60 years ago called Cancer Ward. And he's got an older doctor in there who's kind of, you know, saying some of the things that Solzhenitsyn, I think, believes. And this older doctor said he thinks the best system would be one where people have to pay to see their primary care physician because then they would only go when they needed to. But then once the primary care physician thought, oh, you need specialty care or hospital care, that's when the insurance would kick in. And and that's somewhat similar to this. I think it's kind of what you just said a little a bit about. And I think you're going to find out that at least the numbers she shared with me are not tremendously expensive. No, and, and not unpopular by any stretch. I know uh, in our state of Indiana, just south of us in Indianapolis, this has really taken off and is extremely popular. Ah. I have some, some friend physicians that are doing this and it's working and people uh, are happy. It's also really popular, I think she'll describe, for people that are just too busy to go to the doctor during traditional hours. Um, they can't get off work. They, they can't get away. Maybe they work non-traditional hours um, and they need access. And so this is a way they can gain access. Wow. So in OB, you've seen this done. Not so much in OB, um, but a little bit in OB, uh, because so much of obstetrics involves the use of hospitals. Uh, right. But I know when we opened our freestanding birth center, we had no insurance participation at all, and people were lining up to pay out of pocket outside of their insurance for something they valued. It's pretty interesting. That you know, I, I can't wait to hear her talk about uh, some of the house call stories, because I think about growing up listening to my grandparents talk about the little town doctor in Western Kentucky. And nobody had an appointment. If you got hurt, you just drove over to his house and you <laughs> knocked on the door and, you know, he helped you. It was it was Dr. White in Hickman, Kentucky. And uh, I, I remember hearing those stories from my grandparents so many times. And, I, you know, the Marcus Welby image yes, of yes. really, this is what a doctor is. Uh, we've certainly drifted from that. And maybe we need to drift back towards it a little bit more. That's beautiful. So this episode in honor of all the Dr. Whites in the world, <laughs> which brings us to our medical trivia question of the day. Unsurprisingly, the category is house calls. So Dr. Duane's going to talk about doing house call visits for some of her patients. According to a 2020 article in American Family Physician, one out of every 200 patient visits were house calls in 1996 and one out of 100 20 years later. What percent of patient visits were done in the home in the 1930s. Wow. What percent of patient doctor visits were done in the home as house calls in the 1930s? You're going to have to wait till the end of the show for the answer, but we'll be back after the break with Marguerite Duane on direct primary care here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to our interview on this episode of Dr. Doctor. We've got with us Dr. Marguerite Duane. She's a family physician who's going to talk to us about direct primary care. She did her family practice training in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where she met her husband, who's also a family physician. Uh, she has been an adjunct associate professor at Georgetown University, and she's heavily into uh, natural and fertility awareness-based methods of natural family planning and still does that. In fact, she's co-founder and executive director of FACTS, stands for Fertility Appreciation Collaborative to Teach the Science. She co-founded uh, a direct primary care uh, group called Modern Mobile Medicine in 2016 in the D.C. area. And now, just this summer, she founded her own direct primary care practice uh, in June in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. She does house calls. She serves patients of all areas and uh, of all ages. And most of her patients are still in the D.C. metro area. She's a prior member of the board of the American Academy of Family Physicians and the Family Medicine Education Consortium. She and her husband, Ken, are uh, parents of four young children. Marguerite, welcome for the first time to Dr. Doctor. 
Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here with you both. So after you finished residency training, you didn't go into direct primary care. What was your first job? So interestingly, I grew up in New York, went to college and graduate school and medical school in New York, and I decided to move all the way to Lancaster, Pennsylvania to do my residency. And after having that broad experience, I thought to myself, what's it like practicing family medicine in the rest of the country? And so I actually spent my first year after residency doing locum tenens work. So basically, locum tenens is temp work for docs. And I did all sorts of various uh, roles in that year. So I started off my first month, I spent a few weeks in the Dominican Republic, um, doing true house calls in huts. Um, it's the first time I ever did pap smears um, with a flashlight over my shoulder. That was fun. Uh, came back to Lancaster and did a month of like a true outpatient family medicine practice. Then I went to New Mexico and spent three months on the Navajo reservation in Shiprock doing cradle to grave, inpatient, outpatient, everything from, you know, uh, OB visits and shingles patients and well child checks. And that was, that was a blast. And, uh, but it was December and it was getting colder and I didn't want to go back to New York or Pennsylvania. So I went down to San Antonio, Texas, worked at a residency program in Krista Santa Rosa in San Antonio and worked at a nursing home for nuns, which was a lot of fun uh, for a couple of months. And uh, after that, I came back up to Pennsylvania and I spent two and a half months doing student health at Millersville University, which again, introduced me to a whole wide range of issues in the adolescent population very interesting, very valuable learning experience. And I thought, how can I cap off this, you know, crazy year of working and living all over the United States? Well, I decided to go as far west and still be in the United States. And I went to Bethel, Alaska, which is a two and a half hour plane ride west of Anchorage. So you literally could see Russia from Bethel. And it was a town of about 10,000, served a population, um, it served an area the size of the state of Oregon. And, uh, Sometimes if there was a woman in a village in labor preterm, they'd put me in the plane next to the pilot with the bassinet in the back. And the first time I ever got to see what it looks like from the front of an airplane. Uh, But that was also just incredible, incredible experience. And honestly, I credit my training at Lancaster General Hospital Family Medicine Residency Program to giving me the skills to be able to go and practice in such a wide range of of settings. and then I got married and my husband, you know, we'd spent our entire dating and engaged relationship while I was gallivanting all across the United States. He thought, hey, now that we're married, can we live in the same city? So, uh, <laughs> crazy so idea. Crazy idea. He had just accepted a fellowship, uh, a medical editing fellowship at Georgetown University with the American Family Physician Journal. So we moved medical to Washington. Medical editing. That sounds yeah. fun, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. So we moved to Washington, D.C., where I settled down into a traditional uh, practice a federally qualified uh, community health center. I did that half time, and I joined the faculty at Georgetown, where I started teaching medical students. So. so, Marguerite, despite all of the amazing travel, which you know you should write a book if you haven't, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, at some point, it, it must have occurred to you, I don't think I like this sort of traditional model. Tell us what that what those feelings were like, and how did you come up with a different idea? Yeah, so that's a great question. The, the neat thing about doing locum tenens is I did get to see different types of practice models, you know, sure. suburban family medicine practice, accepting all kinds of insurance, federally qualified community health center, you know, seeing mostly underserved patients with Medicaid, working on the Indian reservation, you know, they had, um, they were covered through the Indian health services coverage. So I, I had the opportunity to experience practicing medicine in a wide variety of payment settings. But the idea for direct primary care first came to me probably about a couple of years out of residency. Um, I remember reading an article in the Family Practice Management Journal written by a, a family physician, Dr. Brian Forrest, who had a direct primary care practice in Apex, North Carolina. And I was fascinated by this idea that you would work directly for your patients. And um, again, so you I visited working- him. I, I didn't actually. I, I read about him and I was intrigued. And I read about another practice in um, in Modesto, California, called St. Luke's Family Medicine Practice, which is they describe themselves as a Robin Hood practice. They serve a lot of underserved, um, but then they have a, a benefactor model where people would pay a direct rate and they would pay a little extra to help cover people they couldn't afford to pay out of pocket. So nice. the, the idea intrigued me, but it wasn't until 2008 when I actually accepted a position as medical director of the Catholic Charities Health Centers in Washington, D.C., that I really learned the concept that people can pay for healthcare directly. And when you pay for healthcare directly, it actually significantly lowers the cost of mm. healthcare. And 
you know, at Catholic Charities, the patient population that we served was an entirely underserved, uninsured population. The exact population that people say can't do direct primary care because exactly. they can't afford it. But what I what we learned, you know, we didn't charge a monthly membership. We asked our patients to make a contribution for each visit. We asked for $40 a visit. On average, these are patients working day-to-day jobs. They would contribute $32 for a visit. But I also learned we had negotiated with some of the major lab um, lab companies to get labs at cost. So I was like, what do you mean a CBC only costs $3.86? <laughs> when I was pregnant, I got a bill for $60 for my CBC and a, you know, a TSH was $7.42. And I was astounded. Like, how could these labs that, you know, when I was in a traditional practice, patients bring these in bills or I would see, you know, the cost from my own experience that they were so much more. But when you pay for things directly and you remove a lot of that administrative overhead, mm. it can significantly reduce the so cost. So can you do well. that yourself or was that only something they would do for a group like Catholic Charities? Nope. So I've negotiated rates myself as an ind- independent individual family physician. And, you know, the nice thing is, is many direct primary care doctors do have their own solo practices. A lot of us, like when I first started um, my initial practice, I had a partner in there, some larger groups. But the majority are DPC practices with one or two doctors. Um, many of us have formed alliances or were members of things like the DPC uh, Alliance, and they've ad- advocated on behalf of direct primary care doctors. But when I was starting my new practice this spring, I reached out to LabCorp. I said, I was working with you before. We had negotiated these rates. I'd like to negotiate similar rates for my new practice. And they were said, they said, fine. And I gave them a list of labs. You know, I went back and forth on some because I do a lot of women's health. I do a lot of hormone testing. I really wanted to get really good rates uh, to check hormone levels. And I was able to negotiate very, very low rates. Um, so Marguerite, you, you're using the phrase direct primary care. And we know in medicine, we love our vocabulary. But yes, um, words matter. <laughs> yes. And then sometimes we hear or read about concierge medicine. Yeah. Uh, help listeners understand, are those the same thing? And if not, what are they? Yes. No, they are not the same thing. And, you know, when I hear people refer to direct primary care as concierge medicine, I kind of have the same visceral reaction when I hear <laughs> patients refer to physicians as providers. Oh, yes. Different. Yes. Thank <laughs> you there. So with, with concierge medicine, um, patients can pay typically an annual fee or a monthly fee that is very high. Um, and concierge doctors will still bill insurance. Direct primary care doctors tend to to charge much, much lower fees, um, and we do not bill insurance. So Mm. I have many patients without any insurance, and all they pay is the monthly fee. And when I talk about the cost of direct primary care, I I will often discuss with patients, it's like your cell phone bill. If you're an individual and you have an individual cell phone plan, that might cost you $70, $80, $90 a month, depending on your carrier, depending on where you live. If you have a family plan, that might be $199 a month. And Similar with direct primary care practices, patients will pay an individual um, fee. And oftentimes for family physicians, we offer a monthly uh, plan for families, which is at a very, very reasonable rate. And when you explain to patients, like you can get care for your entire family for under $3,000 a year, it's mind blowing to them. They're like, well, that's worth it. You know, the healthcare of my family is worth it. My healthcare is worth $1,000 a year. A lot of patients with traditional insurance may still choose direct primary care because for a couple of thousand dollars before they even meet a deductible, they can guarantee themselves access to a physician that knows them and works with them directly. So back to concierge, there must be something different about concierge that people are willing to pay those higher amounts. What is it? So it's, it is access. Um, and it's interesting because in DC, where where I originally started my direct primary care practice with my uh, colleague and fellow family physician, Dr. Matthew Hayden, um, we're some of the only direct primary care physicians in DC. There are a number of concierge practices, but there are very few direct primary care practices, which is why when my family made the decision to move to Lancaster, my patient said, you can move, but you can't leave us. Like We still need you as our doctor. Um, so it's just a matter of what's available and what's accessible. So a lot of times patients will pay a higher fee to have access to a doctor, but with direct primary care, you can get that same level of access. It's just, it's not as freely available in the DC metro area. But I, I'm still having a hard time picturing what could I do if I paid for this concierge that I couldn't get in a DPC practice? Why, why are people willing to pay more for concierge if they're just as available? 
Um, maybe because their offices have espresso machines and our offices have Keurig machines. I'm not sure. Honestly, I don't know why people would pay extra for concierge other than it's the only thing that's available. So, so in other words, if I'm a patient, I might have the same experience of the two except for the ambiance. Exactly. So they, they're, they are more similar than different then. Yeah, although the key difference is concierge doctors will still bill insurance. So, um, and concierge, with direct primary care, that monthly fee is often all-inclusive. Like if you need to come to the doctor's office four times in a month, you don't get billed a separate charge every time you come in. Mm-hmm. It's all-inclusive. So all of my patients have my cell phone number. They can text me. They can call me. They can message me through the patient portal. Um, they can, you know, see me. There's no extra charge for extra visits. I think some concierge practices may limit that or they may instill a copay depending on the concierge practice. But the real difference is the fees. Like some people will pay, you know, again, for an individual, they may pay $1,000 for a direct primary care doctor for a year, but $3,000 for a concierge doctor. Now you're seeing all of your patients via telemedicine because you're in a different city. Is that a direct primary care thing or is that just your model? So with my model, I still actually see my patients in person. I still do house calls. Um, I moved to Lancaster, like I said, this summer, it's about a two hour drive. And so right now I go to DC typically every two weeks. Um, I'm gonna head down there Thursday afternoon. I've got two patients scheduled Thursday evening, which is great. Patients love that. They don't have to take time off of work. Um, And then I've got patients scheduled all day Friday, but I did a telemedicine visit this morning. I've got another one scheduled tomorrow. Um, It just depends on the patient needs. Most direct primary care doctors, if not all, will do telemedicine visits because the idea is is you meet the patient where they're at. You provide the care they need and the setting that is most desirable because I don't need to see you in person to be able to bill your insurance company. Whether I see you in person, whether I you know discuss your lab results with you over the phone, I'm getting paid the same amount either way. Um, and because I'm not billing insurance, I don't necessarily need to see you in person in order to get paid for rendering services. Most physicians in a traditional model, if they're doing, you know, telemedicine visits, they don't get paid for that. You know, things changed a little bit with COVID, but most physicians are not going to get paid for doing telemedicine visits. So if a patient has, you know, lab results and elevated cholesterol level, the doctor will say, have the patient schedule an appointment so the patient can come in, you can make a medication adjustment and then bill the insurance. Well, I don't need to do that. And why am I going to ask a patient to take a couple hours off work to come sit in a waiting room when I can just as easily handle that matter over the over the phone and get them the care that they need? So, Marguerite, how many patients are in a typical panel for somebody who's doing indirect primary care, you know, you know, the, the norm versus the norm. primary care? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So indirect primary care is really the current healthcare system, right? You know, who are you working for? Are you working for your patient directly or are you working for the insurance company? Um, And most physicians that work in a traditional uh, practice model, family physicians, will have an average between 2,000 to 3,000 patients. Now, you know me, Tom, I'm an extrovert. Like, I love people. I love talking to people. I love getting to know people. I think it'd be really hard for me to get to know 3,000 people intimately, (laughs) you know, to really address their healthcare needs. And the reality is, as physicians, this is the most intimate professional relationship you can have with a person outside of potentially like a priest-parishioner relationship. I mean, when you really get to know your patients and you're caring for them at their most vulnerable, it takes time to get to know people. So for me as as an extrovert, it was really difficult to get to know my patients as well as I would like to get to know them. In direct primary care, a full-time direct primary care physician typically will carry on average 500 to 600 patients. In fact, I just met with a direct primary care doctor today in Lancaster who has Covenant MD uh, family medicine practice, and he's full. His panel is capped at 550 patients, and he's like, that's a good number for me. He's like, and if I lose a few along the way, that's okay because around 500 is, is a good number to really be able to manage them effectively. Now, I'll bet physicians listening or would-be physicians listening are thinking, oh, my word, she must just get bombarded with patients. There can't be any boundaries. Um, speak to that idea from your practice life. How do you manage it and what's it, what's it like? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think to a large extent, it depends on the person. Hmm. You know, So 
I've never been known to have great boundaries. I mean, my life all flows from one aspect to another. You know, I do fertility awareness-based methods just today. I had a patient that I was seeing for follow-up hormone monitoring and pregnancy for a telemedicine visit, and I had three of my fact students sitting in observing the call. So talk about the blending of worlds. But it's a win-win for everybody. The student, the students get to see this in action. The patient gets to like help educate future physicians, and they're excited about that. Um, but it, again, it depends on the person. My partner, Dr. Hayden at Modern Mola Medicine, he was really good about boundaries. He's like, five o'clock comes, you call me after five, you know, I may, I may not respond right away. My feeling is, you know, I had a patient call me once. It was like 4.15, a totally reasonable hour. She's like, my daughter just fell off the swing. She cut her head. You know, she's like, could you come see? Could you, could you check her out? I'm like, I'm like, I just picked my kids up from school. My husband's not going to be home for 45 minutes. Can I get them home? Like, my husband will get home and then I'll come over, you know, after dinner. She's like, oh, that's great. I'll feed my kids. I'll like, you know, so those are the boundaries that, that I have chosen to, to instill, you know, for myself. But I am very clear with my patients. Like, if you have a non-urgent issue, don't call me with that. Like, if you have a question, like, what's the side effects of this medication, put that in the patient portal. So I've been really good about, like, explaining to the patients, use the patient portal for this. Use the phone for this, use the text for this. So Saturday evening, I got a text from a patient who said, my two and a half month old has a fever of 101. What should I do? I'm like, that's a perfectly appropriate thing to text me for on a Saturday evening. And I called, we did a we did a telemedicine visit, and I said, I'm keeping my phone on by my bedside. Any issues overnight, call me. Like I will, you know, I will answer. Um, and again, it's just it's communication. I have actually had to tell some patients you know, you do need to call me. I had a patient text me one morning at eight o'clock in the morning. It's very kind to wait until eight o'clock in the morning and say like, I woke up at three o'clock in the morning with chest pain. I was like, why are you telling me at eight o'clock? He's like, well, I didn't think it was a big deal and I didn't want to bother you. He's like, if it was really bad, I would have just gone to the ER. I'm like, waking up at three o'clock in the morning with chest pain is a perfectly appropriate reason to call me at three o'clock in the morning. So I've had to do the opposite. I've had to encourage patients like, yes, you know, I do want you to call me. Um, for these reasons. So I think just setting expectations, like being clear, like communication, what what is going to be the appropriate thing. I've had sometimes with patients traveling and they're in different time zones, I have to remind them like, um, I'm three hours like ahead of you. So if you could not call me at eight o'clock at night, California time, that would be great because it's 11 o'clock here, you know, for a quick question that was a non-urgent matter. So usually, you know, if one or two corrections, patients are really good about learning. And I think the other thing that makes it easier is people know me as a person. You know, it was funny. My first two years in practice, I never got a call between like six and seven. I remember talking to one patient who called me at 715. She's like, yeah, I thought about calling you an hour ago, but I figured that was dinner time, so I didn't want to disturb you. And I figured I would just wait. I was like, well, that's really thoughtful of you. In fact, we were having dinner, so I appreciate that. So, Well, I think this is a good place to take a break. Well, I think it's a great time to take a break. Go ahead. <laughs> and we'll be back with more about direct primary care and the fascinating life of Dr. Marguerite Dwayne here on Dr. Doctor. Well, welcome back to Dr. Doctor and Marguerite, welcome back with us. Um, you know, as I hear you talk about house calls, I'm old enough to remember watching Mar Marcus Welby um, and Gunsmoke with the doc and, and other great <laughs> Americana pieces like that. But is, tell us what it's like to do a house call. Is this a real thing? Or are you just making that up? <laughs> no, it, I tell people I'm the Marcus Welby of the 21st century. I think the key difference between Marcus Welby and I is I have my little black bag, but then I have my little green bag that has my computer with my electronic health oh. record. Um, but no, I, I do an entirely house calls based model. And my practice, again, I cover people of all ages. So my youngest patient will be four weeks old on um, Thursday. And my oldest patient is 100 years and four months old. So, um, but there's huge advantages to doing house calls. And it's interesting because a lot of people think, oh, house calls, you must take care of a lot of elderly patients. Well, other than my 100-year-old's patient, I have a 75-year-old's patient. The next one after that is in their 60s. Oh. Most of my patients are actually young families mm. um, with lots of children because let's face it, when one kid gets sick, usually two get sick and then the third mm. gets sick. And most Moms don't want to have to like load three, four or five kids into the car to take them to the office. You know, after COVID, like most practices won't let you bring in more than one child. So it's very convenient for families that I'm able to come and take care of more than one person um, at a time. Now, 
it certainly does come in handy with some of my patients, like the 75 year old patient I mentioned. One day as I was driving my kids to school, you know, my phone rang and it was this patient He's like, I need to talk to you. My knee is hurting. I fell last night. I was hoping it would get better when I woke up this morning, but it's really swollen. And, and I said, well, I'm just dropping my kids off at school. I said, I don't have my computer with me, but got my eyes, I've got my brain, I've got my hands. I can at least look at you and examine you. I said, if you want me to stop or I can run home and grab my things, like, oh, just stop by. So I stopped by and I looked at him and I examined his knee. I'm like, now show me where you fell. It's the huge man you're doing house calls. Uh, so I fall walking down the stairs to the basement. So he showed me the stairs to his basement and the lower half of the stairs, there was no railing. I'm like, okay. Oh. So my primary recommendation to you is hire a general contractor to put a railing to your stairs <laughs> because this is a patient with diabetes, even though he had good sensation in his feet and that wasn't the cause of his fall. I'm like, over time, you may lose that sensation in your feet and that may become you know, more important. But the most important thing I could do is assess the environment yes. and see what I could do to make a difference. Now, not to toot my own horn, but his diabetes, his hemoglobin A1C is still under seven at 6.9. Mm. And you know, I remember we were working on his diet and I said, he's like, I don't understand why I'm not losing weight. I'm only eating 1500 calories. Like, well, show me what you're doing. He's like, well, I have a serving of cereal. I said, show me what a serving of cereal. He takes out a bowl, he just pours it. I'm like, okay, now I took a measure cup. I'm like, that's one serving. That's two servings. He's like, <laughs> oh, he's like, when I have coffee, do I have to put that in? I'm like, well, do you put cream in your coffee? He's like, yes. I'm like, yes, you have to put cream in your coffee. So, you know, being able to assess, you know, not only the physical environment, but, you know, the food that they're eating, you know, the medications that they may take can be incredibly, incredibly helpful. Um, and uh, so it's it's amazing what you can gather when you see somebody in their home. And, you know, Marguerite, I think, you know, physicians, I mean, present company excluded, we sort of like our, um, we like our boundaries. We like to, we like to hide behind our desk and our white coats and our masks and things. And we like to say, this is my space over here. And that's your space over there. But you're going into other people's space. It's not yeah. yours. What's that feeling like? Is that intimidating? Is it off-putting? You know, that's a fantastic question. One of my patients once said to me, you know, Dr. Joanne, you're like the Indiana Jones of doctors. You walk into a house, you don't know if a dog is going to jump up on you, a baby is going to throw up on you, a snake is going to crawl out from behind a windowsill. <laughs> you know, you never know what you're going to deal with. And I'm like, this is true. This is very true. And I remember talking with a colleague about my uh, about my practice once. He looked at my husband. He's like, you let your wife go out to these houses in D.C.? Like, aren't you worried about her safety? You know, the reality is, is I have a very small town family practice in a big city. Like I have done next to no marketing. All of my patients have come through word of mouth. Like my very first patient, the family that signed up with me, our boys had done a play school together. My next patient was a woman from my book club. I've had patients from um, my children's school. I've had patients from, you know, my church. I've had patients that I have encountered in other settings. So it is very, um, it can be a little bit intimidating, but it is far more informative and helpful to see like, what kind of chaos is this family experience? Are there mm -hmm. food security issues? I open up the refrigerator and check on some of these things when I'm doing some of my wild child checks. I get a much Do you find, Marguerite, that there are limitations to the home visit? Do you ever find yourself thinking, gosh, if we were just in a traditional clinic, I could, I could do this better? Yeah. So I know I said to you when I first started locums, I was in the Dominican Republic and I was doing pap smears in patients' homes. I don't do pap smears in patients' home in the United States. So that's <laughs> the one thing, you know, but I, uh, I have a relationship with a great OB practice in Virginia that they will allow me to use their space to be able to do that. Um, but I've done procedures in patients' home. I've removed toenails in patients' homes. Um, uh, I do, though, have a great relationship. Many of your listeners, and you may know Dr. Uh, Dee Dee Byrne or Sister Dee Dee, as uh, she's known mm -hmm. to many. Um, her convent is around the corner from my house in my neighborhood, and she's got a clinic set up in the basement of her convent. And so whenever I've needed to see a patient, you know, in a more contained setting, I've been able to use that space. Um, mm -hmm. And so I've been able to do ultrasounds for some of my pregnant patients. Again, I do a lot in fertility, fertility awareness-based methods, restorative reproductive medicine. So it's nice to be able to do ultrasounds on patients. Um, that being said, I have taken the ultrasound to patients' homes. You know, I had, I've had at least two patients who had experienced a miscarriage. And to be able to go to the patient's home, to be able mm -hmm. to make that diagnosis, you know, and deliver that devastating news um, in, a, in an environment where they felt safe and they felt at home as opposed to having Go to a tech, not you know, go to an ultrasound center, a radiology center, and have a tech say, "Well, the doctor will call you at some point." Oh, sure. And the mom knows, but nobody will tell her. So, 
Um, so yeah, I, I, there's very few limitations. I do vaccines in patients' homes. You know, I work with a local mm -hmm. pharmacy to order vaccines, pick them up, um, get administer the vaccines right there. So you know, I had one family. I was doing they at the time. I think they had six kids, and I was trying to get them caught up on shots. They were a relatively new family to my practice, and the mom just had the kids playing downstairs, and she would call them up one at a time. I'd give a couple shots, send them back down, send the next one up. Um, so it's you know what that reminds me of? Scary. Did you ever see the original movie of Cheaper by the Dozen? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. With so Martin. my yes. favorite scene is when all twelve get a tonsillectomy <laughs> on the dining room table the same visit. <laughs> I'm not just that in a patient's home. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I have attended some of my patients' home births. Um, you know, which has been neat. You know, they'll a lot of my patients will use midwives to, to deliver their babies, and they've asked me to be there. Uh, you know, when the baby's born, because like, you're going to be the baby's doctor. So no time like the present to start with the exam when the baby is born. So that's been, that's been kind of nice too. No, so, you, you know, you're using the phrase direct primary care. Who do you work for? Um, talk a little bit to listeners about just how insurance, this insurance thing, we, Tom and I chatted in the intro before you joined us about, you know, insurance has really taken over the practice and it's the it's the third person in what should be a two-person relationship. Absolutely. Um, how, how do you see that having changed through your career and where do you see that going? Yeah. So direct primary care means exactly what it sounds like. I work directly for the patients. Mm. I provide primary care to my patients who pay me directly. So we've completely removed insurance from the equation. Now, that's not to say insurance isn't necessary, but I often describe to patients like, you do not purchase car insurance so that your car, you know, your car insurance is going to pay when you need to get your oil changed. You know, you don't purchase car insurance to get your windshield wipers replaced. You're not going to bill your insurance if somebody sideswipes your rear view, your, your side view mirror, and you need to get that replaced is five hundred dollars. The reason you purchase car insurance is if a truck runs a stop sign and slams into the side of your van and causes four thousand dollars worth of damage. Insurance is designed for unexpected, catastrophic costs. Primary care is neither unexpected nor is it catastrophic. If you have kids, you can pretty much guarantee somebody's gonna get a cold, somebody's gonna sprain an ankle, somebody might get a urinary tract infection, you know, somebody's gonna fall off a swing and sustain a laceration. These are expected costs. You know, as we get older, like there's expect expectations for well visits. Um, if you have high blood pressure, you can expect to go to the doctor three or four times a year to get a blood pressure checkup. These expected, what should be low cost uh, encounters should not be covered under insurance. And that's why primary care is perfect for a direct pay model because mm -hmm. most primary care can be provided um, very effectively, very efficiently, and very cost effectively to patients when they pay directly out of pocket. Once you start billing insurance, then as a doctor, I, become working, I begin working for the insurance company. What do I need to check off in my medical record to make sure that the insurance company is gonna pay me? How many review systems do I need to do? How many vital signs do I need to record? What, you know, again, thinking like, what does the insurance company need so I can get paid? Right. And at that point, I'm working for the insurance company. I'm not working for the patient. So direct um, primary we, care is really family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics. Would that be about mm -hmm. it? Yeah, there are, there are some OBGYNs that do direct primary care, and there are plenty of specialists that do direct care. You know, so another way you can think of it is direct pay care. And there, I mean, psychiatrists have been doing this for decades, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there are endocrinologists, dermatologists, uh, others that can do a lot of outpatient stuff that can do a direct pay model. But for direct primary care, yes, it's typically your primary care specialist. So Family how many patients a day would you see if you had a full panel? Uh, that's a great question. I, you know, as I said, I have a very small panel, about 100 patients, because my full-time job is running the FACTS uh, nonprofit, FACTS about fertility. Um, but uh, most direct primary care practices, again, have about 500 patients. I asked the doctor I saw today, he's like, on average, he sees about four to six patients a day in person. Now, that's not the number of patients he encounters in a day. He may do telemedicine visits. He may do phone calls. He may have email exchanges. On average, I would say I probably experience two to three, sometimes four patient encounters a day. Some days, like on Friday, I'll see six patients because I'm going to DC. I'm going to be seeing patients in person. Um, but some days like today, I did, you know, one telemedicine visit and I've had two messaging exchanges with, with patients. So it just depends on the day. But most direct primary care doctors full-time will see on average, I would say five to 10. When I was working at a federally qualified health center, 
I was expected to see 10 to 12 patients in a half day. Most of those patients didn't even speak English. They had multiple medical problems. They had very limited you know, insurance. And so it, it just, it creates a sense of burnout. Direct primary care, you have this sense of satisfaction. Like I'm actually able to listen to the patient's concerns. Mm. I'm actually able to address all of their needs. I'm actually get, able to get my, my notes done during the visit. I never finish a visit without finishing a note, which is a foreign concept to my colleagues that are in you know, traditional fee-for-service. They're just trying to keep up. They're on this treadmill. But these doctors much me- must make far less money because they have their panel so much smaller. They're seeing so many fewer patients a day. Yeah, you know, you would think that, um, but the reality is, is the majority of healthcare costs cover administration. It's funny. I don't know if I mentioned this to you, Tom, before going to medical school, I actually did a master's in health administration. So oh, one of my medical colleagues, the dark side. <laughs> okay. the dark side. but so I, I appreciate, you know, the value of, of administration, but what I've come to learn is that administrative costs eat up a huge amount of money. Um, when I first started doing direct primary care, my first full year in practice. So I, we started in 2016. And my goal that year, I had four kids. My youngest was a year and a half. My goal was to enroll a member a month. So it was a family, an individual. And by year two, I had about 60 patients. And I estimate if I spent an hour per visit with every patient encounter, I made almost twice an hour what I made than when I was a faculty member at Georgetown or when I was a physician at a federally qualified health center. I thought to myself, and I don't even feel like this is work. Not only do they pay me, but they pay me really, really well. Now, in fairness, doing house calls, I have much less overhead than the traditional doctor. I don't have rent that I'm paying. But I would dare say most direct primary care doctors find that they make a better income and they have more fun doing it. Like it's bringing mm-hmm. back the joy in medicine. Because you're but it's a fascinating phenomenon when you think you talk about administrative costs. So, you know, Tom and I are both independent private practice Uh, business people. And so we provide health insurance, but then we take health insurance. And I know the insurance companies are paying me exactly the same amount they paid me in 2011, Mm -hmm. but I'm paying them as a business owner a heck of a lot more, but they're paying the providers the same as they did 20 years ago. Where does that money go? You have to ask yourself. Everything costs more, but they're paying Tom and I the same. Yeah. Where does that money get lost? It must be on the administrative side. Yeah, I mean, when um when I was medical director of Catholic Charities, again, we did not have we did not bill insurance, and I remember my director wanted me to look at billing Medicaid, and I thought to bill Medicaid, I have to hire two more people just to process the claims. <laughs> so what we would what we would potentially bring, we would lose in the staff that we have to hire to push the papers. So yes, you're right, physicians not providers, are being paid less by, are, are not being paid anymore by insurance companies, but insurance companies are charging much, much more, which is why it's it's interesting. At facts, we're expanding. We're going to be hiring full-time people. We're having this discussion of offering benefits. And I'm like, I cannot in good conscience offer traditional health insurance when I know that much of that money is actually not going to support the healthcare needs of the people that I want to care for. Like I would rather, you know, provide for funding for direct primary care, as well as broad funding for a health sharing ministry. So we talked about insurance earlier, like people still do need insurance. Like I had a patient two years ago get diagnosed with cancer, right? Cancer is one of those things, doesn't matter how good you are as a family physician, sometimes, you know, things like this happen. That is that catastrophic, unexpected cost. Like this 35-year-old's father of six was not expecting to get a cancer diagnosis. So what kind of insurance do you recommend those patients carry? Yeah, if so that's they're in a, great, a DPC group. Yeah, so that's a great question. So in the beginning, I would rec- I would have recommended catastrophic healthcare insurance, but with the Affordable Care Act, th- that went away. So for a lot of my patients, I'll recommend doing health sharing ministries, or if they want to do health insurance, do a high deductible health insurance you know plan where they may have a deductible of five or ten thousand dollars, because much of what we do we can cover. And you know, if I have to order an X ray. I will call the lab and say like how much or the the facility and find out. I had a patient who had a knee injury. She needed a a knee MRI and the local outpatient community radiology center was willing to do an an MRI for $400. When I called the hospital, it was $2,500 for the same test, right? I'm like, this is the same procedure. So the fact that the cost is so, or the price is charged is so variable you know, is a reflection on how so with the high deductible plans. Does that does the money they pay you count against their deductible? No. no okay. It doesn't. No. What happens if you want to go on vacation? 
So that's a great question. So <laughs> when I was in practice with a partner, like we could cover each other, although I would always tell my patients, text me first. If I can't manage you, I would, you know, refer my, uh, refer them to my patients. Um, in the six years that I was with my partner, um, I, the only time I was not able to cover patients again, this was my choice, uh, was when I was in China. You know, my, I took my children to China. They were at a Chinese immersion school. It was this, this big school trip. I couldn't really get reliable service <laughs> there. So my, my partner covered me. But when I go on vacation, I typically will tell my patients, like I went to Myrtle Beach this summer. I said, I'm going to be in Myrtle Beach for a week. I'll have my phone. I may not hear it when I'm at the ocean. Um, so if there's an emergency, you know, certainly uh, I, I had a nurse that was helping to cover me. I said, you know, you can call her first. Um, and if she, if, if maybe she can address it. A lot of solo direct primary care doctors like me, they'll find another doctor that will provide coverage. There's a pediatrician in DC who has a solo practice when she goes on vacation. She'll reach out to me and say, can you provide coverage while I'm on, while I'm gone? I'm like, sure, mm. I can. Because of my commitment, my loyalty, and my love for my patients, I'm often like, call me first. Like, you know, it's it's rare that I don't want to be there for my patients. My husband, I think, I wish I would toss my phone in the room and be like, can you just <laughs> not? Because he's a boundaries person. He's like, I see patients on Fridays, think about patients on Fridays, and I edit articles the rest of the time, or I teach the rest of the time. But, you know, again, that's a personality thing. That's a style. Well, you know, it, it sounds wonderful hearing you describe it, and I'm sure our listeners think the same. Could you see this becoming more of the norm and less of, you know, sort of a, an exception over time. Yeah. Well, I have seen it grow from, you know, I, I talked about Dr. Brian Forrest at the time, 15, 20 years ago, he was maybe one of a hundred practices. Um, I've seen it now grow to over 1200 practices. When I talk to physicians who are burning out, who are like, I can't do this anymore. I'm like, mm -hmm. have you thought about direct primary care? As a community, we're always willing to help one another and support one another and getting started. You know, the doctor I met with today said, yeah, I was talking with this other woman who just started direct primary care practice in July. I was telling her this is what we use for imaging, this is what we use for labs. So we're out there trying to support one another because we've realized the nirvana, the direct primary care, the joy that comes from this practice of medicine. We want other people to experience. Like we went into medicine, most of us, to take care of people, to form strong doctor-patient relationships. Mm -hmm. And this is what direct primary care allows you to do. It allows you to form those kinds of relationships with patients. And so we want other doctors to experience that. And I think as doctors become more disillusioned, they see their reimbursement staying the same. They see these big healthcare systems coming in and taking over and instilling these quotas of patients that you have to see and you know procedures that you need to do and tests that they want you to run. And you're like, do, do I really need to do that? Is that really necessary? If you want to like use the skills that you've developed as a professional, use your brain to make well-informed judgments. I think many doctors are going to start to say, maybe direct primary care is an option for me. And I would encourage them to look into it. Reach out to any direct primary care doctor you know. If you don't know any, if you're not sure if there's any in your area, there's a great website, dpcfrontier.com, that has a mapper and it maps out all the DPC practices. And it's been amazing to see in the last 15 years since I discovered direct primary care, how that map has grown from like, you know, a couple dozen dots to like areas of the country where it's just like filled with dots. Marguerite, um, it's, really it's been fascinating listening to you. We we love your energy and we love your mission. And I know our listeners have uh, benefited from hearing a lot more about direct primary care. So come back uh, again and tell us how things are going with your, your practice. God bless you and God bless your good work. Thank you. And I appreciate everybody's prayers for my practice, MD for Life, and prayers for my patients. And thank you to you both for all of your work. Dr. Doctor, and welcome to this episode's Answer the Medical Trivia Question about anything, but what else could it be? House calls. Yes. So house calls in 2016 were supposedly 1% of family physician visits. I find that hard to believe, but nevertheless, that's what the data says. But a better question is, what percentage of doctor visits by primary care general physicians in the 1930s were house calls? This is is astounding. 40%. Isn't that amazing? Almost half of physician visits. That's that's just incredible. Now, regardless of what you think, neither Chris nor I were present in the 1930s. So there you go. So Chris, what are your top three takeaways from this incredible, um, gosh, she can get a lot in in a short period of time, can't she? <laughs> I love this idea of asking the question, who does your doctor work for? Yeah. Uh, do they work for you? Do they work for the hospital? Do they work for the insurance company? 
Who do they work for? And the answer to that question, then you have to ask yourself, how does that affect their judgment? You know, how does that affect the recommendations that they're making? Who pays the bills usually affects what kind of recommendation comes. So I love that idea. And the, one of the other things she said that I thought was really worth writing down is this idea that insurance is for the unexpected catastrophic. I think a big problem with health insurance in America is we've come to expect it for everything, uh, when in reality, it should be for those catastrophic, unexpected things. And then I think, um, you know, the third point to finish on is really, I'm pleasantly surprised. This idea of direct primary care, it may be for everyone. It may be mainstream, as we say. If it isn't today, it may be soon. Boy, as a physician, a lot of that sounds really attractive. I, I hate the huge administrative overhead. I hate the wrangling that most my employees do with insurance companies. It's it's just no fun for me. It's no fun for employees. It's no fun for the patients. I would love to have a practice like that. It's just not practical for what what I do. And I don't know if it is for what you do. Although she mentioned OB practices and dermatology, but not most practices like mine. But you know, I guess in fairness to the insurance companies, not that I feel the need to necessarily be fair, but we've we brought this on ourselves as a country. You know, we've we want very, very low copays. We want anything that we want to be paid for. And the price of that is sort of the institutionalization, the de- personalization of medicine. And maybe, just maybe, people like Marguerite can get that pendulum to swing back the other direction. So listeners, maybe DPC is for you. Thanks for being with us and listening to Marguerite talk about that here on Dr. Doctor. You can find this and all episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on the episode archive at the top and you can search over 290 episodes by guest or topic. And while you're there, click on the YouTube link near the top of the homepage, drdoctor.org. You can see a lot of these episodes in video if for some reason you'd want to do that. If you've got a question or an idea, we would love to hear from you. Click where it says submit a question. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.